0: This is Michael Cowan and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves.
1: You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit.
0: I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just
1: begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Today on the show, we have an old friend of mine, a lawyer named Jude Basile from California. I met Jude 20 years ago when I was a student at the Trial Lawyers College, and he was one of my instructors. Uh, He went on to actually become the president of the Trial Lawyers College. Also, he's had incredible success in the courtroom, being named Trial Lawyer of the Year more than 12 times, and he's even been inducted into the inner circle of advocates. In our conversation today, we're going to talk about the difficulties of getting to trial, advice he has for young trial lawyers, great books to read for any lawyer who wants to try cases, and the importance of understanding ourselves and our story before we can tell the stories of our own clients. We talk about something I know many of us struggle with, and that's the fear of deciding to reject a case. We had a great talk, and I hope you enjoyed enjoy it as much as I do.
2: So I'm here today with Jude Basile. Jude, how are you doing today? Great, great. It's really nice to see you here in
0: California. It's nice to be here. You know, I've known you for 20 years now. Yeah, uh,
2: I know. Never been to your office before, so this is kind of nice. Uh, and thanks for coming on the program. Well, it's fun to be here. It's fun to be in the presence of another good trial lawyer. Well, thank you.
0: For those of you who don't know you, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself.
2: I've been a lawyer since 1982. I two. I've uh, grew up in western Pennsylvania in a bar where my dad sold beer, hot sausages, and pizza to coal miners and steel workers and railroaders. So uh, I didn't come up with any silver spoon, but I managed to come to California and I went to law school here. I worked as a prosecutor a couple years and then in 1985, I started my own practice.
0: And since then, you've gone just from you know, leaving the prosecutor's office to being you know, a member of the inner circle of advocates, having all these huge jury verdicts, you know, getting the national reputation. What are some of the steps, you think, that along the way that let you
2: develop your skills as a trial lawyer? Well, I, I think, uh, like anything else in life, you have to have a desire for something. Uh, I was an athlete in high school and college. I had a tremendous desire to be an athlete. And whenever I got to law school, uh, really from early on, I had a desire to be a trial lawyer. And I used to go and watch uh, trials while I was in law school. I even watched them when I was in high school. But watching trials and watching uh, a jury that just 12 people can make, make such important decisions gave me a tremendous desire to be able to stand up in front of them and do that. So uh, what made me uh, develop as a trial lawyer was, number one, a desire to do that, to talk to ordinary people. You don't have to talk to defendants. You don't have to talk to insurance adjusters. You just talk to regular people on the street about what's right and what's wrong. And I think from growing up in western Pennsylvania, my dad's bar with a lot of just Regular people uh, helped me develop those skills from an early age, but the power of a jury is such such a way to level the playing field that is becoming more and more difficult to hang on to. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, to get the trial, it, it's we face obstacles now in my. I don't know, I guess it's 36 years now of being a lawyer. I've seen an evolution of how our enemies uh, approach us. And now the whole thing is uh, delay, uh, drag things out, uh, throw broad nets of discovery to tie us up as long as we can with all kind of witnesses, force us into uh, at least deposing their experts, naming our own experts, you fall into that trap. And it's been one of just uh, litigation delays and expense uh, to stop us from getting to a jury. I really think if something uh, needed to change, it would be some legislative enactment that uh, we can limit some of this and get Uh, easier access to a jury because the only cases that can go to a jury now are very big, expensive uh, cases. And it's hard for uh, young lawyers to get that trial experience, uh, particularly if you're just in a civil firm. So it's expensive. And the defense game, there's a summary judgment motion. I don't know about your cases, but in virtually every case, I get hit with a summary judgment motion. Seldom, if ever, are they granted. But nonetheless, you go through that exercise. A lot of work. A lot, and it—it's—it uh, uh, all plays into their game. I keep on telling young lawyers I work with when we're discussing pretrial stuff. I said, "Please, just get me to my two favorite words. Get me to my two favorite words." And they say, "Well, what are those two favorite words?" And they are, "All rise." <laughs> When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says "all rise," I know we're here. Yeah, unfortunately,
0: we're getting you know further and further away from that. I mean, not only do we have mandatory mediation, overcrowded dockets, but then we have arbitration. I mean, I'm got a case; that would be a great jury trial case that I'm arbitrating uh, next month, and you know, don't like it. But
2: it was forced arbit is an, an arbitration? Arbitration, yeah, arbitration it's a, it's agreement. Workplace
0: injury. If you want to work there? You know, the guy got sent something saying, you know, we
2: now in our repression agreement by you not quitting your job, you're agreeing to it. That's what we're fighting in that case we just filed in uh, Las Vegas. There's an arbitration agreement. That's the first thing we got to fight there. And, you know, that reminds me, we were talking before we got started, you know, the Seventh Amendment, the right to a jury trial in civil cases has evolved over the years and now it's the Seventh Amendment do you have a right to present a case to an arbitrator or to an adjuster or to a mediator. You don't have the right to a jury trial. Has changed as far as the Seventh Amendment goes. Sure, there's cases that get to a jury, but uh, there's a tremendous fight that has to go on in order to even get to a jury before you even present your case.
0: I think another part is that you know, not only is it hard to get there, but it really tests your, your determination and your desire because I don't
2: know that everyone really has it. Well, there's a lot of factions that weigh into to uh, running a trial practice. Uh, and I think one of the problems today is uh, because of the pressures of running a firm, the overhead, the expenses, how expenses it's gotten, is that there's all these forces, oh, if we settle this case, we can make payroll. If we settle this case, I can pay my overhead. If we settle this case, I got a tuition payment. And all those forces are, are at work. And what I would like to see happen is maybe it's time for uh, the United States to evolve into a system similar to what they have in England. When I was in law school, I got to spend a summer working with barristers in London. The advantage with that system is that you have barristers that their entire practice is just appearing in court, just appearing. They only have jury trials and criminal cases, but perhaps we need a system like that, that there are just uh, firms in America that do nothing but trials. These other lawyers, can they can negotiate with insurance companies. They can do maybe some of the litigation and stuff. But there needs to be a trial specialty developed. And I think there are There's some very, very good trial lawyers in this country. And I'm talking to one yourself right now. Uh, but you really need to be a student of that and do it regularly uh, in your practice focus your entire practice on nothing but the preparation of a trial.
0: I guess the only concern I'd have with that, I mean, it would be fun uh, for those of us that like to try cases, is the, could someone that doesn't try cases and hasn't been in there, think of what you need to do to work up the case, discover the story, get the evidence, the witnesses that the trial lawyer is going to need. I mean, how does that work in England? Do they bring them in early enough where
2: You know, I probably shouldn't say we should be like England because in England, if I remember right, the barristers who are speaking in court never even speak to the client. Whereas uh, here, mine and your whole philosophy is that the people we represent, their case story becomes so embedded in us because of our personal relationship with them and the time and effort we spend in understanding who they are and what they've been through. Their case actually becomes our case. It's, it, it's like it's happened to our family. And so that's where the English system is not like ours. That's where, I, you know, I really believe that there is a need for continuing ongoing learning to be a trial lawyer. And I think that needs to be a distinct specialty in our profession today.
0: That I'd agree with 100%. What are some things that, you know, we have a lot of younger lawyers that listen to the podcast that want to be trial lawyers. Uh, What are some things people can do to develop those
2: skills? Well, I think if if you're early on, like your first year or two out and you want to be a trial lawyer, there is no substitute for actually being in there trying cases. And like I previously said, it's so hard in a civil firm to get the trial. So, My first advice would be to do what I did. I was very fortunate. I hounded the hell out of the city attorney in San Diego until they had to hire me just so they could shut me up. And the city attorney back in the early 80s in San Diego handled all the criminal misdemeanors for the whole city of San Diego. And you would literally just go and sit outside of the presiding department and the presiding deputy would come out and hand you a file and point you to a cop and send you down to the courtroom and you'd go try a case. And they they would be a lot of DUIs, a lot of uh, shoplifting, a lot of uh, uh, minor batteries or uh, bar brawls and things like this. But you were picking a jury and you were uh, standing up. And I probably did 50 jury trials in in a year there doing that. And, that would be my first advice. Get into a prosecutor's office or a public defender's office, and if I might make a suggestion, do the prosecutor first, and then become a public defender, because prosecution is a lot easier. <laughs> in a lot of way, because you walk in, the jury loves the prosecutor, the judge loves the prosecutor, everybody loves the prosecutor, so you go in and do that. And if you're going doing UI cases... I was told that a DUI case and it's true if you can do a DUI case you probably have the foundation to try any type of case criminal or civil because DUIs have direct and circumstantial evidence this is driving under the influence cases they have direct and circumstantial evidence they have eyewitness testimony they have expert testimony you got the chain of custody you got to deal with on the blood samples so you learn all the evidentiary stuff and they're really good cases to get your feet wet and try. So that would be my first thing. Get in a prosecutor's office. They do public defenders who do court appointed work because that's where you can get really tested. When you are not you know that. When you're doing, when you're a public defender, you go into court and everybody hates you now. The judge hates you. The jury hates you. And even your client hates you sometimes, you know. And if you can do stuff in those cases, then you're a real trial lawyer.
0: I did it by doing a lot of. Low property damage, uh, soft tissue auto cases, mostly chiropractor only, and I, so I had three set every week and got to trial 10 to 12 times a year for a few years, and, uh, got, you know, mostly was able to develop, win enough of them, you know, when all of those, no. but when enough of them where people will start entrusting me with bigger cases. and But, you know, a uh, guy I went to work with, a friend of yours, uh, Ed Sableton, he before he, he actually became a federal defender, before he did, he took on a, a docket of 50, uh, 50 soft tissue, low property damage cases from one referring lawyer. Uh, and because he gave us so many, I gave him a 50% referral fee. So <laughs>
2: oh,
0: I was trying them. I had to buy it. I had to pay the other lawyer 50% and then I had to pay Ed his percentage. Oh. Uh, and uh, so I didn't make any money, but I, had, but I got to try a lot of cases. Uh, And, you know, I think there's some opportunities for people that want to stay in the civil world. They're not as sexy, but some of the mass car wreck firms are looking for people that will actually try cases. Uh, And, you know, the problem is a lot of people say they want to try cases, and I've had that at my firm. There's some lawyers that want to try cases, and they go try them. There's some people that say they want to try cases, but for some reason the client never wants to go to trial. They'd rather have the the sure $1,500 in their pocket than go to trial. It's all, you know, if you want it bad enough, you... It's all in how you talk to the client. and
2: uh, Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There, and there's no substitute for it. Would you agree? There's no substitute for actually being in the, the courtroom.
0: Yeah. I, I agree, but there's also a difference. Uh, there's a federal judge a long time ago that told me that there's an interest in having 30 years of experience and the same year of experience 30 times in a row. Right. Uh, you know, I think that not only – you have to get in there and do it. There's no substitute. But I think becoming a student of trial I to see. And I can see you are just from the books you have. Uh, As accomplished as you are, you still
2: are are learning, reading. Right. And some of the books I have there go back. Well, of course, the classic is Mo Levine on Advocacy and Winning Stories by Jim Perdue. And then the Case Framing book by Mark Mandel and Rules of the Road. I mean, these are uh, right here in my office. And and another great book. I mean, I don't know if you ever met that guy, but Miles Lord. Uh Did you ever meet him? He was at the trial lawyers college way back in the beginning. And he did, he was a federal judge on some of those early products cases involving the Delkin Shield uh, contraceptive that was causing all kinds of infections and killing women. Uh, but anyhow, I'm always uh, reading and trying and learning and doing. So that's important. You can't, I, I think, you know, talking like we were. I, you, there's a lot of lawyers out there, I think that have been practicing many years and have the attitude like deep down in their deep, deepest secrets, they go, "Oh shit, I guess I'm gonna have to try this case. you know As opposed to uh, guys like me and you, when we take a case right from the beginning, when I start working on it is I'm going to try this case and then after I really work on it is I want to try this case really bad and then it finally gets to I will try this case. I don't give a shit what's going to happen or go on. I
0: I think I still have a mix of I want to try this case, I'm going to try this case and I am so scared to try this case. (laughs) Well,
2: of course. (laughs) Of course, but you know, by the time um, most of the cases get to the all rise, it's, uh, you know that this is the only way you can go. Right. It's got to go. So here we go. Let's get it on.
0: And I think there's a little humility that comes from, you know, getting a defense verdict with a million dollars at the table, for example, that uh, for the family really could use it. Uh, Luckily, at least I was an associate and wasn't making the decisions when that happened, but that scars you. Uh, You know, whereas most of the cases it's an easy decision. I mean, most of the cases I've tried, I don't know about you, the, the, the offer was not one that was going to make a substantial change in my client's life. I was the only one with any real risk because I had money in the case, so that's easy to go try. It. Uh, but, you know, when you've got
2: enough money to make a real, real difference in someone's life. Well, you know, it, with all this talking about, I want to go to trial, I want to go to trial, I do want to say this, and I say this all the time to lawyers and to, to even the people I represent. We can always be bought out. Our egos are not so big, should not be so big, that we cannot be bought out. Because like you just said, if there is money there that's going to change people's lives and take care of them, you cannot uh, walk away from that or at least seriously consider it if it's going to change the lives of people that really need it. Now, The fortunate situation to get in, though, is one I'm looking forward to trying. In January, it said, it involves a cell phone use uh, of a driver that was calling into work at the time using a cell phone and went off the road and killed a bicyclist. Uh, And the woman that was killed, I represent her husband and two adult children, and They're not Bill Gates, but they don't need the money. What they need is more corporate awareness of the dangers of cell phone use. And so the good position I'm in is it doesn't matter, and I've already told the other side, and and they don't hear me what I'm saying. There are non-monetary considerations that must be met before that case were ever settled. Now, that's that's a rarity there that yeah. you have a family like that, that they don't care about the money. They want a change in corporate policy regarding cell phone use while people are, are driving. So I'm very, very uh, excited about having that opportunity to try that case.
0: And it's so fun when you have a client like that. I had one, uh, she would not, and the case ended up resolving, but the non negotiable part the whole time is a. a, a Tire came off of an 18 wheeler and hit her 70 something year old mother's vehicle and caused a, a fatal crash. Uh, and it wasn't about the money. She didn't need the money and, you know, the 70 something. She was supporting her mother, not the other way around. Uh, but unless they agreed on a training program to train the drivers on how to properly check the, the pressure of their tires as part of the pre trip inspection, because that's what running on, on under inflated tires would cause the, mm-hmm. the incident, uh, she wouldn't negotiate. And so she wouldn't talk money at all until they agreed to that. And once we agreed to that, we got a settlement. So you got that?
1: Yeah, and yeah. they did it. And she See, felt good.
0: She she honestly, I think, felt a little dirty asking for, for no. her. She was a very, very religious, very conservative person. I think felt a little dirty asking about for the money. But because it came with change and the thought that she could save someone else's life, it made her feel good.
2: See, that's so great when there's, when there's non-monetary considerations that make stuff Safer, better for everyone. I mean, those are the most uh, satisfying times, really. Uh, as a as a trial lawyer, I know there's financial benefits, but uh, to actually obtain justice for people and obtaining it from juries are, is the most uh, thrilling, but. Obtaining those non-monetary things that do good for many are just unique. I mean, it's unique to to our system. I mean, try doing that in Russia. Try doing that in China. Try doing that in South America. I mean, it is really a system here that, unfortunately, the public doesn't realize how special it is and how important it is.
0: Kind of switching a little bit, but still staying on trials, you know, I think you and I talked a little before this. I think we both agree, you know, trial are or storytellers. Uh, but how do you find
2: what story to tell? Well, uh, that's a, a great question, but there's some um, fundamental understanding of stories that I think is needs to be understood and the first is all communication is a story all communication is a story i mean what we're talking about now is the story of our trials the story of our lives involving trials the story i mean you were telling me how you got here today everything all, virtually all communication is based around some story so uh You start with that fundamental understanding and then the next step is there's things to read. You know, I'm still big on uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey and uh, the uh, fundamental structure of that, of the unwilling hero that suddenly gets called out to an ordeal and reluctantly joins the ordeal for a good purpose and then goes through the ordeal and Achieves uh, a result and and returns back to the ordinary world as a uh, as a good guy. Um, I think that's uh, I probably butchered it in how I just presented. God, that it was perfect,
0: and uh, <laughs> yeah. I will tell you since I've read Carl Bettner's book, which kind of is an attempt uh, a pretty good attempt of. Applying that hero's journey to a jury trial. Right. I was going to mention Carl's books next. Yeah, it's changed the way I I tried cases and and has made an incredible difference in the results. But keep going. I'm sorry about that.
2: Yeah, well, that was the second thing. You know, Carl Bettinger's book is is great uh, also to put that together. But a fundamental understanding of stories and what makes a good story. Then I think what uh, helps me a lot is uh, before you get to cases or anything, fundamental understanding that stories is a basic means of communication. The hero's journey is outlined by Joseph Campbell and then Carl Bettinger. And then looking at what what's our own story. How can we understand ourselves and our own story? And I know you and I have done work, and it's a bad word to say because people don't understand it, done work in psychodrama, which is kind of a crazy term, psychodrama. <laughs> but then again, if you want to be a trial lawyer, you probably got to be a little psycho and understand drama. But that's off the topic. What I'm talking about as far as stories go is how do we explore our own stories? How do we understand the story of our life? What, what chapters in our own story has really made us who we are? And how do we understand our own story? How can we face our own truth of who we are and what we've been through? I think going through that and exploring our own stories then is the next step. Once you've done that work, then you can become um, to an understanding and an exploration of the other's story.
0: Why do you think it's so important to understand you know, more of ourselves and our stories before we try to learn other people's? Oh, great question.
2: Because that's the, that's the truth. That's our own truth. And if you can find your own truth in who you are and what you've done and have the courage to look at who you really are, the, the good stuff, but also the bad shit that we've all done in our lives. The, the struggles that we've had to face, the pain that we've had to endure in our own lives, once you have the courage to face that, then the, the curtain is opened up to explore the other. At least that's how I've seen it with me. Maybe you've experienced that too. Then I have a much more better understanding of this person that's sitting in on the jury that's going to say, you're just a greedy lawyer. You're just uh, someone that's uh, out in this for the money. And then uh, you can explore that person and you know well, where is that coming from? Why do they feel that way? How do they understand that? So that's why I think the understand or witnesses, experts, everything, but understanding your own story first then opens the door to that. And that, if I can do another short war story here Absolutely, on that, more the better. On that, same, that same topic, it just came to me. I was in a trial once, and we, we were doing jury selection. We broke for the evening, and we came back the next morning, and I was still in the middle of jury selection. And before we started, a juror put up his hand, and the judge said, yeah, you got a question? He goes, yeah, I went home last night. And I thought about all the things this lawyer talked about yesterday, pointing at me. And I don't think I can be a juror on this case anymore. And the judge goes, well, tell me a little more. Why can't you be? And he says, because all that lawyer wants to talk about is money. And I think it's disgusting. And it seems to me like he's just here for money. Now, he's saying this in front of the whole panel with me, about me. And so the kind judge at that moment says, well, maybe Mr. Basil will have a few more questions for you. Go ahead, Mr. Basile. Wow. <laughs> so at that moment, I stood up and I and I said to him, I go, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for being so honest and saying that because that's exactly what I want everyone else to be here. And I suspect there's probably more of you here that feel that same way. And, of course, I got a lot of head, head nods. And I said, well, who else has a question like that? And another juror put his hand up and said, yeah, I got a question. Do you really have a case here, or are you just in this for the money? Ask me straight out. And I looked him in the eye, and I said, I'm going to be straight with you. I am in it for the money. I got a wife and three kids, and this is how I make a living. I'm in it for the money. But I'm also in it because I've fallen in love with this guy. I represented a young boy that a wall had fallen on him and crushed him terribly. I've fallen in love with him, and I believe what happened to him should have never happened and was wrong. There was dead silence in the courtroom, and everybody looked at me. We went through the trial. After the trial, we got a good verdict. I went in to talk to the judge. They paid. Some weeks later, I went in to talk to the judge. And the judge says, you know when you won that case? was whenever you told them the truth, that you were there for the money and you loved your client right at the beginning. So that's kind of a long story, but that was having the courage to look at who I am and be truthful. Yeah, I'm here for the money, but this is it.
0: I think there's two things. One, if you didn't say you were there for the money, who'd believe you? you? The other thing is if you didn't really love your client, who'd believe you? Right. I mean, you, you can't, you know you can't just go say it you have to actually do
2: it, do it. it was, yeah i've walked i remember walked over to him matt was his name slowly i put my hand on his shoulder and looked him in the eye when i said that and meant it and did it now you know if we might just freeze that for a moment how would some other lawyers have handled that situation they would have said oh uh your honor they would have turned to the judge to save him your honor uh Uh, is this appropriate or your honor may have a sidebar and i think i want to excuse these people or not face that uncomfortable moment it's
0: not about me making money you're not supposed to consider that it's about safety it's about you start preaching or preaching
2: some bullshit yeah you're not supposed to consider the money your honor would you instruct them that they're not consider what money i'm making or yeah that you know some lawyer-like way (laughs) to do it instead of a human-like way. Yeah. You know, I want to be honest with you, what's going on here? So, uh, it's always, I'm sure you find, it's always those most difficult moments during a trial that the most powerful stuff happens. If we just are aware of it and let it
0: happen. Do you know what Michael Iserman? Um, a little bit. Okay. He has this, it's, it's a Zen lawyer. Yeah, it's, it's out there. I loved it. I went to his workshop, uh, about a year and a half ago when he does this yes and so people say something horrible to you and you have to find the truth and say yes that's true and there's more to the story kind of what you do yes i am in it for the money but and 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 i uh, do but i believe in this case right uh and it's it's difficult but it's really powerful because when you deny truths even when they're inconvenient uh, you lose credibility
2: right and that's what i uh always tell lawyers that i'm working with that Uh, trials are really about uh, one thing and one thing only and that is credibility they're all about credibility who can we believe, who can we trust who can we follow, who can we understand but it all comes down to credibility that's the whole thing and I love uh, when the other side I mean I've said this that the verdicts I've gotten, the bigger verdicts I've gotten, I think the defense lawyers have done as much to help me get those uh, as I have. Uh, and, and in the uh, last trial, I don't know if we talked about it, that I did, uh, the lawyer objected 31 times in my uh closing argument, and most of them were in my rebuttal argument, and just kept objecting, and the judge kept sustaining him too, and telling me to move on and shut up and all that. And I finally concluded my rebuttal, final closing argument, after they objected 30 times by saying, simply looking at the jury and saying, look, folks, uh, you're going to go in the jury room in a few moments, and He, pointing at the defense lawyer, is not going to be in there to object to anything that you guys say. (laughs) So, aren't you ready to go in there where he won't be around objecting to all this stuff? And they were nodding and saying, (laughs) yeah, I said, so good. I'm going to trust you guys to go do your job. That's how I sent him out. But uh, so anyhow, it's story is important. We've been talking about a lot of good stuff yeah but story's important, credibility's important, being honest, and then I think that uh bond that can be built throughout the trial with a jury is very important, and that bond is built around a credible story, so we've kind of gotten off track, but you were asking you know how how do we uh then come to this story in our case and uh, I think after, like I said, a fundamental understanding, all communication stories, Joseph Campbell, Carl Bettinger, and then how do you get then exploring your own story, I said was the next step. And then, okay, how do you get to the case story then? Well, fundamental rule of mine is you can never spend too much time in the lives of the people you represent you know, that's why, I mean, you see how my office is set up here. Whenever people come into my office, I mean, this this office kind of looks like maybe where a psychologist or someone would be working. There's a couch and two chairs in this office, and the desk is just stuck in the corner. And I, I like to speak in a circle here with people. So spending a lot of time with the people you represent, but the story that I really like to develop and discover is the story of the wrongdoing. There's been a lot written with rules of the road and the reptile and stuff about the story of the wrongdoing, because the story has to be credible, but the story has to be about, I often ask lawyers, what does the story need to be about? And they'll say, writing a wrong and all this, the story must be about the jury, uh-huh. be about something, that's meaningful to them in their life. So the story has to be about uh, the jury. So the first chapter has to be about the wrong. What's the story of the wrong? So after I do all that, I like to like spend time's time uh, walking in the woods we're walking up in Big Sur. I did it this past weekend. There's a hermitage of monks I go up to and drop in on, but then I take a, I did a four-hour hike, six miles, three miles up a mountain, three miles back down this past Saturday. It took me about four hours doing it. But I'm alone in solitude among nature, and I play little scenes in my mind of who... The defendants are and who uh, uh, they might have been in their life of, uh, I'll take on characters while I'm walking uh, thinking of the supervisor of, uh, of a corporation and how they manage their employees and how they set up a business that evolves around the cell phone and I was thinking of my cell phone case this uh, past Hike and I'll start with that just broad range and uh, walk through it then I'll do focus groups uh, I did a case against an addiction treatment center and I wanted to tell you how we started that with uh, developing that story we did focus groups that people didn't know that it was a court case or anything we brought a group of people in and we asked them if, if you were In a situation where you had to find a treatment center for a loved one, how would you go about doing that? And then what turned out to be the most important aspect of the focus group, we said, what is the most important uh, qualities that a treatment center needs to have? And after, I think we did three or four focus groups, uh, it kept coming back to a safe place. That they people that are addicts, they're coming off of drugs, can do all kind of crazy things. And so they need to be a safe place. Well, what does that mean, you know, and how do you determine what kind of safe place to that? And we kept working the group and we came down to a safe place and there were three things. They need to be assessed, then they need to be referred to the appropriate level of safety or treatment. And then they need to be monitored at all time. So we had like three basic exhibits in this whole trial that ended up with a big verdict that said safe place at the top of this board and then had A-R-M, assess, refer, and monitor. And that was with every uh, witness, every exhibit and everything. And then we had a uh, what I called a uh, fear exhibit And then we had an anger exhibit. And the fear exhibit was uh, these treatment centers were just operating out of neighborhood houses, and we were showing how their business model was kind of scary to be treating addicts this way. And so we had a big overhead, which was our fear exhibit, showing all the neighborhood houses throughout your neighborhood there. So that was the fear exhibit. Then we had an anger exhibit where we had pictures of all the CEO and officers and people that weren't even coming into trial, but we knew who they were, and we had their faces up there for anger. So fear and anger. Anyhow, I'm talking a lot, but that's how we put that together.
0: I think that's so important. That's one of the things, you know, I went to seminars where I do a lot of trucking work. and say, make it about the company, make it about the company. And, you know, I was doing some work, just personal research, how you tell stories better, how you do a villain. And if you look at all the literature uh, on storytelling, and on, you know, for movie makers, writers, villains aren't entities. You know, yeah. if you watch the Captain America, for example, I don't know if you've seen that movie. No. Um, okay. Well, you watch Star Wars. Yeah. The Empire is not the villain. Darth Vader, and then later the Emperor are the villains. Right. Uh, They have to be individuals, and then they have to be powerful individuals. They just can't be, the stormtroopers are minions, they're not villains. And I think that what you did, and I think it's important, is to identify who are the people making these decisions, and more importantly, profiting from these decisions that are endangering everybody else, endangering their patients, endangering the people in the neighborhood around them.
2: Uh, Right. uh, Right. Exactly. Yeah, we were fortunate in that case that uh, we tried to depose the CEO, and they objected on an apex motion. You know what they are? They say, you can't take the guy at the top. And the judge granted it and protected the CEO. But then I think because we were doing so well at trial, they decided they needed to call the CEO. Oh, wow. So they brought him out, and the judge, nonetheless, even though we couldn't depose him, let him testify. But he was their last witness and was, was an obvious Hail Mary witness and didn't know anything about the facts of this case and was just there to try to save their ass, and and that came off really well. And he was the villain that walked into the courtroom that um, just about money and greed. That's awesome. And I know nothing about this case. And so,
0: but uh, the, I guess one of the challenges in an addiction treatment center is you had a client that was in an addiction treatment center. How did you deal with that?
2: I mean, obviously, if his life was going that great, he wouldn't be there. Well, yeah. There, there were two... There was a whole bunch of dynamics that came into play in dealing with that. But the, the two fundamental things that we dealt with was tell the truth. Uh, he, was, he was a career alcoholic and then developed an eye disease where he was gone gradually blind. And so he lost his job by losing his sight, and then he started taking Xanax and benzodiazepines and over-medicating himself on that. So it it was not like a street drug using it for pleasure. So that was one way we differentiated it. You know, his story, once again, was he was a hard-putty, overworking guy, but was a functional alcoholic, developed an eye disease that, I mean, if you're going to go gradually blind at age 47, it's going to be pretty depressing knowing yeah. that that's happening. So then he over-medicated, which was wrong, but he over-medicated with the Xanax and hit bottom. So so we had a a story where it, it wasn't like some kid just shooting up with heroin on the street for fun. So that, that story. So that was one way to combat it. But the other way was we focused a lot of attention on the defendant on that and how uh, addiction treatment and addiction is such a big problem in society today and it's a massive problem that's out there and look how bad it is, how they're doing it, how they're taking money from people and not treating them appropriately.
0: And so, and what happened to to the poor guy in that case?
2: Oh, it was terrible, terrible. He, uh... He uh, he hit bottom and uh, got in a tussle with a wife, and the cops got called and he got arrested. The wife picked him up the next day from jail and they said, we got to do something about this. So they went online and in the phone book and they found this company. and they hustled him to come in, and he uh, takes a bus and a train from Northern California to Southern California. And he's in their care for 20 hours, and during that period of time, he's gone through severe withdrawals from the Xanax being shut off cold turkey. It should have been tapered. He's delusional. He's uh, uh, almost in a state of psychosis, doesn't see reality or anything. They don't take him to the hospital. They put him in a room by himself alone for over two and a half hours. No one's checking on him. And when they finally go to check on him, he had taken a razor blade and mm-hmm. cut his elbow veins and his elbow and his wrists, and his neck and had uh, bled to death. Gotcha. So it was a suicide. It was very, very ugly. So that was another difficult challenge, suicide. I would say... Uh, Several members of the juror, jury panel thought that suicide was a sin. And, you know, there's no one should get sued over someone sinning. So that's what happened to him. But it, it was uh, should have never happened. All he needed to do was be put in a um, hospital where this is where he should have been. and He should have had a sitter and he should have been watched more closely and certainly should have taken razor blades and stuff away from him. their defense was, uh, he never mentioned suicide. They questioned him several times and throughout those 20 hours, he never mentioned it. And, uh, he had no prior history of self harm or anything, but the whole business practice was so bad. The jury saw it that way.
0: And I guess if they sent him to the hospital, they wouldn't make the money.
2: Well, that, that was it. I mean, and the big thing was, and we had former employees testify this, they had a crisis team. He, he wanted out of there. When he was hallucinating, he said, I want to go, I want to go, and delusional, and I went out of here. They had a crisis team that they would call him. The crisis team were two recovering addicts that would talk him into staying because the crisis was not his physical well-being. The crisis was the company was going to lose money if he left. So they had this crisis team, and their job was to keep them there.
0: So how do you structure this story? So on one hand, you have the story of the company that is not treating people in a safe way and not giving them the referrals they need because they want to make more money. On the other hand, you have the you know, someone that got addicted to drugs, uh, and in a state when they're out of mind, they kill themselves.
2: Well, uh, we structure it like we talked about earlier. We made the structure of the story about the jury. And in California here, we have a wonderful mandatory thing. If you All you got to do is ask for it, and the judge has to give it to you. And that is a mini opening before jury selection. I don't know if you have it in Texas. No, we don't. It, it is a wonderful thing, that you can start framing the case then. So this is how it went. I stood up and uh, I said, folks, you're here. You're going to be making two very important decisions about how addiction treatment services are sold and about how a corporation selling addiction treatment operates in your neighborhood. Wow. So that's how we framed it from the beginning that you this is an important case about addiction, and you're making decisions about how it's sold and how they're operating in your neighborhood. So right away, I think it, I don't know. I was proud of that framing. It didn't yeah. come overnight, but it, it it was a lot of work. But that that's and that's how you know we kept that theme throughout and concluded throughout. And those exhibits we used were tailored to it. So there it is. How'd it turn out? uh it uh, it was a seven million dollar all non-economic damages there was no economic loss it was a seven million dollar verdict and i i should frame that verdict form because it was the first time on a verdict form i ever had a jury cross out the amount of damages and add another million dollars on the actual verdict form they Crossed out that it totaled six, and then for some reason they wanted to up it, and they actually drew a line through it, and the foreman initialed it, and they wrote in a million dollars more well, I've
0: had cross-outs, but in the other direction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's a nice yeah, I've never had that before I'd like to talk to you about another case you had recently you 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 had a it ended up settling, but you had a case where uh, a defendant agreed to pay five million dollars for the death of a seventy four year old grandmother. Uh, no, again, no economic damages, no wages, no... How did you... Uh, how did you, What was the story of that case and what inspires someone to pay you that much money in that kind of case? Uh, the reason I say that, I hear all the time, well, you know, an, an infant or an elderly person worth, is worth less than a million dollars. I hear that all the time. I don't believe right. it, but I hear it all the time. Right.
2: Well, I told him... This could be one of those jokes, you know, I was how's Jude Basil get a $5 million settlement? Well, it was a $10 million case. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, that's what I told them that I represented two adult children of Faye Lego. She was a uh, Filipino woman that had a tremendous life story. Um, and I kept telling them that I was going to ask for $5 million for each uh, for her adult son who was in his 60s. Or almost sixty, I guess. I guess he was in his sixties, and his and her daughter that was in her early fifties. Um, I was five million each. I was going to ask for, but it, again, it was the story. It was uh, just a driver of a corporate vehicle who wasn't paying attention and rear-ended. Uh, so it wasn't bad real aggravated liability but it was bad enough that they were going to admit which can be bad for us if they admit aggravating things but she had such a tremendous story of who this woman was Uh, she was born in the Philippines and she had her son and her husband died when her son was only about two years old And she knew she would have to come to a, uh, or she thought that the United States would be a better place. And so then she managed to come to the United States, and she worked in factories, and she remarried. And then her uh, second husband had her daughter, and then he died. And she was a single mother again. Oh, my gosh. And so she raised these two kids as a single mother, put them both through college, and they're both doing very well. And then on the day she died, she had a little house uh, outside of San Francisco in the South Bay area, and she had taken in a young girl that was a distant family friend who was a college student at, uh, I think, the University of San Francisco, and just took this girl in to live with her so the girl could afford gone to college, and... Um, she was just such a good person and such a prime example. I mean, she was like uh, Mother Teresa. And so that, that was the story I was going to tell over how valuable a, uh, the wisdom and the love and the understanding that a person of her quality provides to her family is priceless.
0: And how did you discover
2: that story? Lots of time with with the uh, two adult kids going and uh, spending hours at the uh, daughter's home with her grandkids, going in the grandkids' rooms and seeing things that they had from the grandmother, uh, watching the Little grandkids talk about the grandmother. Hearing the story from the adult son of how he grew up and how tough it was, and how his mother was always there with specific scenes of him coming home from school and her working at nights after he'd be put to bed. Uh, again, it's back that you can't spend too much time in the lives of the people we represent. So, when unfortunately it was a defense lawyer that took long depositions of these two people and and I had worked with them to just tell the story in the deposition and and you know I laid out for them who this mother was. And this is back, I think I don't know if we were talking on this podcast about it, but this is one of those cases where, yeah, I want to try that case. Yes, I truly believe it's ten million, it's five million each. But when And the families, you know, they were both doing well. They didn't really need a lot of money or anything. So when they came to $5 million, and it was a number that I ultimately came to, I told them, look, five will do it, and then they came up with five. I mean, that was enough to buy them out. I mean, do I want to torture them with the trial? Do I want to bring them in and have to say who their mother was in front of all these strangers with all the uncertainty of what might happen and with a judge there that they don't know and in a courtroom and you know you can't do that so yeah so when they came to five we pulled the trigger appropriately so and they structured it for the grandkids oh wow (laughs) yeah so it's
0: a good family
2: yeah yeah so uh,
0: i felt good about that so how do you spend so much time with your clients i mean how big of a
2: docket do you carry in the past 15 years, I've never had more than five cases at a time going. Uh, right now, I could say I got three and a half or four because one's on appeal. Um, just, you know, how I don't take a lot of cases. And it's not that I don't spend a lot of time on the ones that I do have. But I think we have to keep living as full eyes as people to be the best we can in a courtroom, at least for me. I mean, when I hear these lawyers just uh, try one big case after another, uh, I don't know how they do it. Maybe I need to learn how they do it. Because when I'm in trial, it's uh, it's intense time. Uh, I still, after all these years, I still cannot sleep during trial. Um, taking the Excedrin PMS, and wow. I mean it's crazy. I cannot sleep, no matter how much I. I started practicing uh, TM a little over a year ago, and I thought that would help me transcendental meditation. I still do that, and it's been great for me. And I hoped that that was going to help me sleep, but I still didn't don't sleep during trial very well. So I don't know. Maybe if I had a big caseload, I won't be able to get so intense and. Then I could sleep, but but I like it this way. I've been very, very fortunate, I mean, to have the cases and the people I represent.
0: How would you find the courage to say no to all those other cases? And worry about if I say no to this, you know,
2: like... I might not be coming. The next one might not come.
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, that's been one of my biggest struggles was, you know, you have a referring lawyer that you've done work with, brings you a case, and there's that... Voice in the back of your head. Well, if I say no to this one. Maybe I won't have any. I won't have any cases next year. Well,
2: that's that's funny though. I mean, the, the, there's another side of that coin though. There's another side because then people go, "Wow, he only takes the big ones, or he only takes the really good ones, or he is really serious about that." And that's how you know. If I say no to a case, I explain that to them. You know. I really devote a lot of my time to the people I represent, and I just can't do it now on that one. And I think that that has a uh, that's helps a lot because then they go, "He's serious, and only does a few." You know, another thing that helped my practice, I think, I was in San Diego for the longest time, and then we had our son in uh, '98. and I'd always come up to this area, to the Big Sur area. And, shit, we saw a house and put an offer on it, and they took it. And I went back to San Diego and said, I'm moving up to near Big Sur. And everybody down there said, are you crazy? You got a good practice here in San Diego, and San Diego is great, and this and that. But I grew up in a small town. I wanted to live in a small town, and so I moved up here. I think that really helped me. Because I started getting referrals on bigger cases after I moved up here, not, nece- not necessarily in this area, and I think it was like, holy shit, that guy chose to like just move up there in the woods. He must have something going, on. and I, I got a few good referrals just because of that move. So I, I guess it comes back to, you know, just living the life you want to live and. Hope that everything works out. Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, so. Yeah, I've always dreamed of having your kind of practice, I've, but I've also met the people that had four cases that then lost two of them and then went under.
2: Yeah, uh, and then so, you're looking for a DUI case. So,
0: I'm, you know, I'm looking for that, that balance. I haven't quite found it yet, but I, oh, I will hair. tell you, I've, I've been saying no to more and more cases, and the it's amazing the people I say no to then come back a year later with a better one.
2: Right, right. And and you know the, the other thing about saying no, I I've discovered that it is probably better to say no to more cases and maybe let a few good ones slip by than end up with a whole bunch of stuff that's just driving you crazy. I agree yeah. with that. I've learned that the hard way too. <laughs> yeah, we all have learned those lessons.
0: On another note, if someone does want to get a hold of you, let's say that uh, maybe have case I think might be one of those four
2: big cases or something. <laughs> How would they get a hold of you? Uh, Jude at Send Drop me an email. It would be fine. And uh, I'm always available out here. Uh, my, I'll even give you my cell phone if I'm 805-909-8113. And I'm happy just to talk about your case or... Oftentimes lawyers are calling me and just, you know, what do you think about this or how should I frame this or do that? I I really do think that we are the last vestiges of a true democracy is trial lawyers and a jury. I don't know that we have a whole lot left right now in our government besides that to get stuff done, so I'm glad to help. At least they haven't yet put lobbyists in the jury room, so. <laughs> No, but they've done enough outside to pollute their minds. Yeah, for sure. That we got to fight to overcome.
0: But you can still overcome it with a good story.
2: Absolutely, and credibility. Yeah, being who you are and being on straight and honest.
0: Well, Jude, I really enjoyed talking to you.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's so nice. I mean, I'm honored that you'd stop by here. And yeah, us was from. a beautiful place to man. come. I appreciate you having me. Great.
0: Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. Lately, we've had some of our listeners reach out to us to tell us how one of our episodes has helped them on a case or helped them run their firm. We appreciate your support of the show, and we love hearing from you. I'd like to encourage each and every one of you to contact us via email at podcast at Please tell us what your favorite episode was or how you heard about our podcast. If you have a request for something, let us know, and we'll do our best to do it. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you next time on Trial law Nation.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests.